You are listening to Death in Numbers, a podcast created by the Humanities Media Project and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, we crack open two cookbooks to ask the question, when did French cuisine become synonymous with fine dining? I'm Amy Vider, a graduate student interested in recovering women's narratives and different languages and different cultures. And I'm Caroline Barta, and I like looking at old cookbooks in archives to think about women's literacy across time. Today, our episode explores the question, a question that we often ask each other, which is how can collaboration impact the success of a project? How can learning benefit from shared labor? Our first episode in this series, Food for Thought, examines how food writing shapes cultural transmission. We analyze material objects from archives of knowledge. Today's story takes us all the way back to 1651. And that's to the publication of Le Vrai Cuisinier François, or The French Cook, a cookbook by François-Pierre de La Varenne. This cookbook established modern French cuisine and helped launch the home cook. In his preface, Lavarin writes, Dear reader, in recompense, all I would ask of you is that my book be for you as pleasurable as it is useful. Pleasurable and useful. That's a pretty shocking concept for a 17th century reader. That cooking could be fun. And the wording of this preface, Lavarin signals that this book is designed to encourage cooking to be a leisure activity rather than a book that is only helpful for professional cooks. Wait, cooking as a hobby? As a hobby, that's fun. Oh, okay. What changes with La Varenne and those that follow him is access. Before the 1600s, cooking was a carefully protected set of skills, monitored by guilds. And guilds are really like labor unions today in that they regulate numerous trades. But unlike today, these trades tended to be passed on by oral tradition. That means there wasn't a rule book for how you were supposed to do your job. Rather, you had to watch someone do their job for a very long time in order to know the specific guidelines for your position. Guilds also did other things like organize apprenticeships, so they would set you up with somebody to learn from. They standardized membership, so they made it clear what the rules were of your trade. They encouraged collaboration, and they also helped people get jobs. Because trades had these complex social rules about what you could and couldn't do, socioeconomic status, so how much money you had, also really limited how far you could go in your career. So it's important to know that Lavarin was a commoner. So he started as an apprentice in a local kitchen. But something crazy happened. He eventually rose to the rank of kitchen clerk. This meant that he was responsible for an entire aristocratic household's food service. We're talking about a lot of food, And a lot of people. And this is before appliances were invented. Good note. Uh, And this is just exceptional all the way around, because the role of kitchen clerk was traditionally reserved for nobility. And La Varenne's humble roots and unprecedented success inspired him to share this passion with the general public. He made it. Why shouldn't other people make it? And placing this acquired knowledge into a sustainable and replicable form in a printed book, Varenne was really doing something special. He was giving his professional secrets to an open marketplace. And this was pretty scandalous, to share these secrets without the permission of a guild. Yeah, he made friends, then he made some enemies. So the French cook, this cookbook contains over 800 recipes, divided by courses, soups, and broths, starters, second course, and small dishes. This is really quite startling, 
if you're opening up this book and all you've known before are medieval recipe collections, because they often bundle together medicinal cures and homemade remedies right alongside the recipes. This led to the line between potion and pudding being really thin. That's right. You could find things like how to improve your acne alongside how to make a soup for dinner. Mm. Tasty. The other thing that La Varenne's cookbook did is really indicated a shift from cooking for sustenance. And instead, he really emphasized how cooking should be a development of flavors. He eliminated these overly complex preparations and instead really wanted people to make reasonable meals that were worth eating. He made cooking accessible. By introducing dishes like omelets and bisques and teaching readers to build flavors through billions in sauces like bechamel... He helped transition France away from the Italian style of cooking that had predominated before. And so one of the things he did is he took local ingredients, like shallots and onions, and he made those really the foundation of French dishes. You could find them in France, and so you might as well be cooking with them. But we're really getting ahead of ourselves. La Varenne's legacy both relies on his place in history and the relationship between cookbooks and the history of print. You might be familiar with cookbooks. Whether you grew up with well-loved copies of a family favorite, maybe Betty Crocker, splattered with coffee, perhaps wine, let's be serious, or have admired them at a distance, you can pick a cookbook out of a lineup, right? Today, cookbooks are hefty. They're usually oversized volumes. People tend to leave them as art books on those coffee room tables. We really don't use them, per se, for cooking. We might not want to splash them with coffee or wine. Just going to admire them. And usually they have those beautifully staged, high-resolution food shots where it makes everything look so delightful. But food books really weren't always designed to be these glamorous art books. That's right. Early cookbooks were limited by technology. So photography did not exist in 1651. And instead, what they did for images were use things like woodcuts and eventually engravings to show readers the types of dishes they might be preparing. That's right. There really were limitations. But even so, these books were bestsellers. As the curator at the British Library explains about the book we're talking about, within 75 years of its publication, the French cook had been reprinted 30 times across Europe. And when it was translated into English in 1653, the book was marketed to every private family, even the husbandman or laboring man, wheresoever the English tongue is or may be used. Considering England's status at the time as the cultural backwater of Western Europe, the rapid arrival of La Varenne's book to England signals its interest beyond its original context. Long after La Varenne's death, the French cook remained an international bestseller, which was a pretty big deal. French cooks had turned to La Varenne's manual for instruction and inspiration, and they continued doing so until the French Revolution in 1789. Because of the unsettling events of that revolutionary moment, people moved from the countryside into Paris. Things changed, and they were seeking work after this. And they were left without the kind of family structure that had fed them up to this point. So what did you do if you didn't have a mom or a clerk who was there to make you dinner? Well, what happened was chefs had migrated as well into the city, and they began opening these things called restaurants. For the first time, the novel concept of a restaurant aimed to replicate the experience of a family-style meal in this increasingly consumer culture of the 1800s. The idea of restaurants quickly spread across the Atlantic. The first restaurant, à la Française, opened in Boston in 1794. For the duration of the 18th and 19th centuries, the concept of professional chef remained predominantly masculine. Meanwhile, the responsibility to feed the masses increasingly fell to women. 
That's right. So while professional chefs got to be men, women were left with feeding their seven children. And as they took on this primarily domestic duty, which was neither skilled nor paid labor, I'll remind you, it became very evident that as the world became more industrialized, really alternating periods of technological advancement and having these significant violent conflicts, that meant that cooking really had to be something that prioritized expediency. You had to get meals on the table. And you also had to prioritize nutrition. You know, you wanted to feed your children. And that was far more important than having a sit-down seven-course meal. Yeah. Sounds like we need another cookbook, you know? Something to kind of compare with. Yeah. Turning the everyday chore of cooking back into an educational but nonetheless pleasurable experience. This is the paradox we've been talking about since we began. How do we make cooking pleasurable and yet something that is elevated? Fun, you might say was going to prove challenging, especially once we got to 1950s America. That's right, we've time-traveled a bit. The post-war generation, especially in America, was enamored with modern culinary marvels. Convenient and cost-effective processed food. Think of those frozen TV dinners and all the things you can make with gelatin. And time-saving kitchen appliances, like refrigerators and handheld mixers. Enter Julia Child, one of the authors of the other French cookbook on our table today, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Welcome to the French Chef. I'm Julia Child. Whether known from a well-loved family volume of her books or from her recent Hollywood treatment by Meryl Streep in Julie and Julia, Julia Child remains a beloved food icon in modern-day America. Her kitchen's even in the Smithsonian. And she is not French. Which is really important, right? Julia Child is an American who helped introduce the idea of gourmet home cooking for modern audiences. Rather than settling for just convenience, what you can throw in a microwave or stick in an oven, she advocated for cooking as a meticulous process that allowed room for error and really fostered hospitality. And by that, we mean if you fell down, you got back up again. She revived interest in taste over function and preached the value of simple local ingredients in order to develop flavors that really had the sense of care and attention for your guests. She's not a 30-minute-to-the-table kind of girl. No, no 30-minute with Rachel Ray. When you cook something from her cookbook, you feel proud of yourself. It's quite the accomplishment to get through all of the steps. It might be surprising to learn that Child did not develop an interest in cooking from a young age. Part of this delay can be attributed to the fact that her parents employed a house cook, much like growing up back in the 17th century, cooking was outsourced. So she didn't really have the nostalgia of cooking alongside family members. She wasn't the sous chef for her mother like I was for mine. Instead, her interest in food was rooted in the warm relationship she had with her husband, Paul, and the cultural opportunities afforded to her by his career in the foreign service. Side note. Maybe she was a spy. We don't know. Julia Child was a spy. (laughs) Let's just say she was a spy. Paul and Julia traveled around quite a bit. And in fact, they were at one point stationed in Paris, at which point Child decided she would attend Le Cordon Bleu. She was bored. She had nothing to do. Why not learn how to cook? Shortly after, she met chefs Simca Beck and Louisette Bertol at Le Cercle des Gourmets, a culinary club for women in Paris. Child's eventual bestseller drew inspiration from her close friendships with these women and the time they shared in the kitchen. So it's important to know, previous to meeting Child, Beck and Bertold had wanted to write this French cookbook for English speakers, but they really lacked the language skills to execute this cultural project well. And so in 1952, after enjoying their time cooking together in the kitchen, they decided they would start a new project, L'École des Trois Gourmandes, 
or the School of the Three Gourmands. It was an informal school, if you will, and it was held in Julia Child's kitchen. This school was designed for American women who were living in Paris and wanted to learn about French cuisine. It seems like it was mostly an opportunity for women to get around and cook and eat really good food. And drink wine. Although the lessons stopped in 1953 when Child moved to Marseille, their collaboration was the foundation for the 734-page encyclopedic cookbook published in 1961, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. In effect, the trio had managed to translate the collaborative kitchen environment that had been developed over centuries in France for home cooks, and they translated it for readers across the world. They found a way to make this systematic text, like we said, 734 pages, in order to train the next generation of home cooks. And really what this did was continue the cultural exchange that La Varenne had begun in 1651. Perhaps then it really shouldn't be a surprise that Child owned two editions of La Varenne, including a 1712 copy of the French cook. And it, it can be found in her collection of 5,000 cookbooks, all of which you can see if you go to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. Once again, a chef's decision to share her knowledge with the world using the medium of a book, inspired generations to attempt professional skills from the comfort of their home kitchen. Rapidly, Mastering the Art of French Cooking was translated into numerous languages, including Finnish, Danish, Chinese, and Spanish. In fact, a second volume was ordered for 1970. Of course, not all translations went smoothly. Perhaps the most controversial translation was into British English. Now I know what you're thinking. How can you translate a book from English into English? In a letter dated November 6, 1975, editor Carol Brown Janeway recalled, Julia has always been very dissatisfied with what British editors did. They entirely changed the layout of the book, which reduced to nonsense Julia's whole method of teaching recipes. That's right, they had managed to destroy the project that Child had so carefully crafted. So for the second translation of the second volume, Letters between Child and her editor, Judith Jones, reveal that British editors were only allowed to convert measurements and ingredient terms. They had to remain faithful to the original layout and text. While there were translation issues in print, her approachable method was easily adapted into different mediums, like television. Child signed on for a cooking show, The French Chef, which premiered in 1963. The show lasted a decade, attracting fans who appreciated Child's let's call it unfiltered style. Back then, live television was not on delay. So when Child made a mistake, the film kept growing. So if she dropped a chicken, she just had to pick it up and keep on cooking. Her recipes were also printed in other publications. In 1970, McCall's, the first magazine for women, purchased rights to serialize selected recipes from Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2. However... They weren't allowed to print that French bread recipe. This recipe really was sacrosanct for a child, and she wanted to keep it for herself. French bread, like Gaul itself, is divided into three parts. You have the making of the dough, then you have the forming of the loaves, and finally, the baking. And I'm going to go into the first part first. Making something as iconic as French bread approachable for American cooks was about more than just the recipe for Beck, Bertold, and Child in the end. It was about inviting American cooks to experience French culture in their home. 
In its continuing legacy, Mastering the Art of French Cooking invites its reader to cook and share a cultural experience and community. When Beck passed away in 1991, Child reminisced, We were like sisters. We were a pair of cooking nuts. She was a wonderful and generous friend. We called her La Super Française because she was so French. Today, French cuisine remains synonymous not only with fine dining, but also with traditions fostered in kitchens over the past four centuries. For many Americans, French cooking conjures the image of a statuesque and boisterous child, but it can often forget her French collaborators along the way. It's also important to remember how Child was building upon La Varenne's contributions to modern tastes and habits. Whether that was the desire to cook locally, obsess over building flavors, places the beginning of the textual revolution of our taste buds just a bit earlier. By a bit, you mean four centuries. So the next time you make a bechamel or opt for an in-season vegetable friendly to your locale, don't just reach for one book. Think about another instead. Julia certainly did. This has been Death and Numbers, a podcast created and produced by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. We are Amy Viter and Caroline Barda. Notes for the show, including links and photos, can be found on our website, humanitiesmediaproject.org. Our theme music is Enthusiast by Tours. Thank you for listening.